Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. You're on Team Human, where we challenge the operating systems driving our society, reveal the embedded codes, and share strategies for sustainable living, economic justice, and preservation of the quirky nooks and crannies that make people so much more than mere programs. This is where the conscious beats the automatic, an intervention by people on behalf of people. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I'm on Team Human. Playing for Team Human today, Dr. Richard Maxwell, political economist and author of Greening the Media. A better representation of a smartphone would be if the thing had an exhaust pipe, little puffs of smoke were coming out of the back of it, because really it's connected still to the old-fashioned industrial supply chain. Dr. Maxwell will reveal the tremendous environmental cost of our digital technologies, smash the myth of a post-industrial society and show what it'll take to create a world sustainable for humans. It's been an interesting week. I keep looking at Twitter and the New York Times and the Internet and seeing all the news coming out of Davos. You know, Davos is the big global money conference where the heads of banks and corporations and some governments get together and try to solve the world's economic problems. And the way they keep talking about the problem is in terms of growth. That's the big challenge for Davos. How do we maintain growth of the global economy? And they're looking at all sorts of crazy ways to do it. Basically, the central banks just lend out more money, even at a negative interest rate. They basically give away money or pay banks and investors to take money um, because they're so desperate for them to invest it in companies so that companies and the economy can grow. And it's a fundamental premise of the market that in order to have a market, you've got to have growth. They see growth as a sign of nature, as if it's a 
fundamental law of existence that things just have to grow. Like since the Big Bang, the universe has been growing and markets grow, life grows and nature grows. Everything grows and it has to keep growing forever and ever. Otherwise, the whole thing just crashes. And it's amazing to me that people this educated, this experienced in money and economics and business can't see that this rule of growth, this law, is not a law of nature at all. It's a law of a very specific kind of economy that was invented at a very specific moment in history. Growth is not something that everything in nature does forever. A tree grows to a point and then it stops growing. It becomes a full-grown tree and maybe grows a little bit or gets a little wider, but it's not like growing the way it did when it was a little baby sapling. Or look at the main systems in nature. The planet is a fixed the planet has a fixed amount of real estate. Right? There's a there's a fixed amount of land. So forests grow to a point and then they become uh, sustainable organisms. Or the coral reef, it grows to a point and then becomes a networked sustainable organism. You know, economies deserve that same privilege to grow to a certain state and then reach a healthy, sustainable equilibrium, what we could call a steady state economy that is no longer obsessed with growing or getting full grown and is now looking more at sustainability, at circulation, at how to keep things going for real and for the long run. But the economy, as these folks are talking about it, it knows no such state. It can't just stay still. It's funny, I was at a uh, a meeting of the vice presidents and presidents of one of the Fortune top 10 companies in the world, a uh, consumer goods company. I was supposed to do this talk on communications. And before I went up, they had the CEO of the company was was standing up on the stage and he was explaining how, well, last year we had, you know, 4.3% growth and next year we're going to promise to get to 5.7% growth. And he had all of these senior vice presidents just chanting 5.7, 5.7 and flags came down from the ceiling with the number 5.7, 5.7 on it. And I finally got up there and said, Jesus, if, if one of the top 10 biggest companies in the world can't go on without growing another 5.7%, then we're all doomed. You know, isn't this company big enough already? Even a company of that size can't stop, right? And the fact that it can't stop is not a function of business. It's not a function of meeting its markets and meeting supply and demand. It's really a function of the underlying operating system for business today. And that's based on a really old and clever but obsolete understanding of how business works. You know, this began way back when, way back in, in really the late medieval time. We had the beginnings of a healthy marketplace. People began to trade at this place they called the bazaar. They were trading in a peer-to-peer fashion, and they were using local market currencies, really almost more like uh, the time dollars you see up in Ithaca, you know, they, to 
to make their transactions. They had a kind of money that was really optimized to promote the velocity of exchange between people in the market. Because if you if you opened the market at the beginning of the day, if people didn't have gold, which they didn't because gold was a precious metal, it was being hoarded, how do you jumpstart trading? How does the guy with the chickens get some bread and the person with bread gets some shoes and the person with shoes, you know, get some other kind of service? You know, unless you're going to have some very complicated barter network, which they tried, um, it doesn't really work. So what they did was they developed simple kinds of receipts. So the bread maker could create receipts for a certain number of loaves of bread. And he knew he was going to sell that bread by the end of the day. So he could go to the shoemaker and give them receipts for bread or the, the, uh, the grain store could make receipts because he had all this grain sitting in storage. And they used these receipts really just to promote trade. Nobody wanted to save receipts. You weren't trying to grow a nest egg. You were just trying to circulate the goods and services in a particular town. And that really worked. I mean, this is how we got the middle class. It's how we got the merchant middle class, the the bourgeois that everyone speaks so badly about. This was the first rise in an economy. The peasant classes became merchants. They became craftspeople. They were selling. They were getting wealthy. You know, but the problem with this, of course, was that as the middle class rose in wealth, the aristocracy was getting poorer and weaker. You know, the aristocracy, these were the old feudal lords. They hadn't worked in eight centuries. They didn't know how to create value. So they had to put a stop to this economy. And the way they did it, well, there were a few ways they did it, but the main way they did it was to make all of that local currency illegal. Now, if people wanted to trade, what they would have to do is use central currency that was printed at a, a central treasury. It was literally loaned into existence. So now if I wanted to trade with someone else, I had to borrow money from the central bank and then pay it back at interest. And who owned the central bank? Well, the aristocracy. You know, this was a way for people who had money, who had accumulated a lot of money over centuries, to make money simply by having money. So they lent money out and then you had to pay it back with interest. And that sounds good enough. I mean, it made money more expensive. It did crush the market. It ultimately led to the plague and all sorts of other terrible things as people got poorer. But as a scheme, it kind of works as long as your economy is growing, right? Because if you borrow money from the central treasury, now you have to pay it back at interest. It means that the economy has to grow so that more money can be paid back than was borrowed in the first place. And that made sense for colonial empires, right? We were going to America. We were going down to Africa, going to South America. We had new lands to take over, new peoples to conquer, new places to destroy and, and, and villages to enslave. But it was all part of the expansion of the great colonial powers. But then what happens when we run out of room? You know, by the end of World War II, the world was pushing back. This is what we call post-colonialism. All those colonies of exploited people, they didn't want to be little colonies of exploited people anymore. So we came up with some new financial mechanisms, a World Bank, an international monetary fund, all these different things to try to promote that further. But really, by around Eisenhower's time, we realized... The economy is not going to grow anymore. We don't have more territory to take over. We don't really have more places to go mine. What are we going to do? 
And what they realized we could do was use technology to grow the economy another few laps forward. You know, technology could kind of increase the surface area on human beings so that there were more ways we could buy and sell things. So human attention really became the new real estate, which is why we all have iPhones and 24-7 technologies and real-time engagement with everything is, is a way of trying to expand the surface area of an economy that has no more planet to grow on anymore. We ended up living in a world where, you know, we're borrowing a lawnmower from a neighbor is really a sin against the market because you could be buying two lawnmowers, right? Each neighbor should have their own lawnmower. So friends sharing any time you spend away from market activity is really is a problem for an economy that has to grow. But the reality is we can't grow our economy forever. If we try to grow our economy forever, we're either going to mine all of the human time out of our lives or mine everything out of our planet. Right? We can't make enough stuff without destroying the very world we live in. And what we've ended up in is an economy where human beings are serving their economy rather than an economy where they... The economy and the money system is serving human beings. You know, no, it's not the cost of business that's requiring growth. It's the cost of money. And who to know better than the current moneylenders and the, the venture capitalists of Silicon Valley who demand that every good tech idea become a new vehicle for growth? Right. Uber is not here to help people get rides. Airbnb is not here to help people make money off their homes. These are software designed to extract money out of labor, to extract money out of land and turn it back into growth capital for these very few people who are actually depending on and feeding off a growth economy. You know, and our, our tech folks, you know, God bless them. They are smart, but they don't see the operating system beneath the technologies that they're developing, right? They're happy to disrupt journalism. They're happy to disrupt the music industry. But then they go straight to Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley and say, oh, come on, give me an IPO. How are we going to get acquired? They're not challenging the underlying operating system that they're working on. You know, instead, they really see the infinitely growing marketplace as perfectly consonant with their own notion of infinitely evolving technology. Right? They see themselves as the servants of silicon, really. That's why Google hired Ray Kurzweil, Mr. Singularity, to be their chief scientist. They are building the next home for complexity. And Mark my words, it doesn't have much to do with human beings, except insofar as we can upload human consciousness to the net or insofar as human beings are going to be required to keep the machine running in the future. Right. Human beings are not in the narrative that's being written either by our economy or by the technology companies that are driving that economy. And when I argue that human beings matter, when I go to an economic conference or a technology conference and argue with my peers, they say, humans? Oh, you only say that because you're human, as if it's some kind of a hubris to care about humans first, to think of technology or the economy as mechanisms to promote human well-being rather than human well-being as a way of promoting the agenda of the market or the agenda of technology. 
what I'm arguing is no. I am on Team Human. That's why we're here on Team Human. And as members of Team Human, we understand that we must optimize the marketplace not for growth, but for people. It's easy, it's straightforward, and it's entirely less convoluted than a marketplace designed to extract value from people and places and forcing more and more consumption in order to just stand still. You know, the the dear folks at Davos need to come to understand that we don't need growth for distributed prosperity. In fact, it's by optimizing our digital economy, not for the growth of capital, which is really just the extraction of value from the marketplace, but for the velocity of money that we end up programming an economy for people. We're Team Human, coming to you alive from the Basement Laboratory for Digital Humanism at CUNY Queens College and online at teamhuman.fm. Joining Team Human today is Dr. Richard Maxwell. He's Professor of Media Studies here at Queens College, a political economist and the author of the Rutledge Companion to Labor and Media and Greening the Media, which he wrote along with Toby Miller a couple of years ago. And that's kind of what I want to speak with him about today. Guiltily, I, I am now leasing a new Jeep something, Cherokee, right? And I get in this thing and it, it does ever it's beautiful in there. You just wouldn't know that there's any problem in the world. That the seats heat you. So I'm in there and I'm driving, I'm thinking about, well, you know, I'm here in a big awful gas guzzling American car doing bad things, and I stop at the light, and when I stop at the light, the car goes off because it's saving gas. So all of a sudden I realize Chrysler or whoever, Monsanto, whoever owns this thing, they're addressing that problem. They made me feel good about, you know, even though I've got this awful Jeep, it actually stopped. And of course, I know from reading Greeting the Media that uh, there's this vast invisible territory that the harm I'm doing every day with all my stuff and my highly digital electronic carbon-filled lifestyle, the damage I'm doing is just invisible to me. And it's only really by reading a book like yours that I can see what's going on on the other end of all this stuff. So I guess my, my first question to you is, how did all of this become invisible and how do we, how do we become conscious of it again? How do we bring it back into our awareness? You can blame academics for a lot of it becoming invisible. The invention of the idea of post-industrialism was one of the biggest scams ever perpetrated on people who were reading this stuff at the time. Industrialism didn't end, of course. It was just this ongoing, never-ending industrialism. It just got displaced. And uh, geopolitics of that, as you know, push a lot of the work in factories to China. So we don't see a lot of the smokestack industries. We don't see a lot of the the environmental impact of the old-time Rust Belt smokestack industries that used to populate this country in places like Flint. And, of course, when capital moves, people don't, which is another issue. But you see the, you see the outcomes of that. I like to say sometimes when we look at these technologies like, um, like a smartphone, 
totally clean. You could eat off it. But a better representation of a smartphone would be if the thing had an exhaust pipe and little puffs of smoke were coming out of the back of it because really it's connected still to the old-fashioned industrial supply chain. If you become aware of that, it's still hard to comprehend. But its invisibility is partly to do with this enchantment we have with advanced technology, which appears to a lot of people like magic. Right. Well, I'm using my little cell phone, and all i got to do at night, I plug it in. It's got the tiniest little thing. It must just be using a little trickle at three drops of, of electricity, and then back I am. I get a whole other day. What's wrong with that picture? Well, it's true. At the consumer level, the little drips and drabs of, of pollution and, and energy consumption don't amount to much. But when you take it in the aggregate, you start to see numbers, in at least in the telecom and network economy that, that are rivaling aerospace at this point. But you have to put it all together. The costs uh, of energy that go into the, the chips that go into the manufacture of laptops, smartphones, tablets, and everything else don't really get accounted for in the end. So if you put it all together, including when it's plugged into the network and you're running these cloud-based services and the server farms that are running all of this stuff and the AC that they have to run, it all adds up to about equivalent to what the aerospace industry is, is dumping into the atmosphere. You had a figure in the book, the idea that, that one cell phone uses something like two refrigerators worth of electricity. Well, it's a controversial number, but it has been argued that if you watched uh, an hour of Netflix a week at the highest uh, resolution you possibly can, it equals the consumption of about two refrigerators. The consumption over a year of two refrigerators, that's a controversial issue. But, and those things are very hard to, to measure, but that's something that raises the question. How much of this invisible, clean industry is really doing damage to the environment on a, on a par with some of the sort of traditional industrial industries that we're used to seeing. Right. So on the one hand, with all of these digital technologies that we all think are so clean, or, oh, I'm using screens now instead of a printer, so therefore, you know, God's going to love me, we know that that's all false now, not just because there might not be a God, but because it's not actually environmentally sound necessarily using this stuff. Then there's an entire other range where you talk about, well, in the, in the latest book about labor, where there's an also this sort of hidden landscape of labor, whether it's little kids going into mines to get the rare earth metals for your rechargeable battery or people in China jumping out windows who don't want to make iPods. I mean, how did that get hidden from us? Well, let me talk about God first. You know, when we think about how we're bad or we're good with the consumption of these digital devices, there's a range of ethical um, positions you can take. And of course, you know, most of us are really human centric. So we can do good in the eyes of God, if you want to put it that way, if we think about the impact on our children of the things that we're doing today, the impact on communities, um, you know, the differential impact that, of course, people of color experience across the planet when it comes to building and then consumption of these goods. So if you were to consider whether you're going to heaven or not along the spectrum, doing good by the planet versus doing good by people is a, is a good way to measure your contribution to whatever it is you, you think of as um, your challenge for improving your life. If you think about labor, primarily it's an anthropocentric or human-centered uh, view of how we take care of the world. However, you also see this sort of intermix. We've ignored nature to the same extent we've ignored labor, and it's disappeared you know, as capital and these devices and commodities take, take over and kind of, kind of uh, enchantment with all of these things, it becomes the first thing that we think about, rather than the links to those workers in China, for example. And this is one of the hardest things for a lot of people who are using these devices, is to see themselves in the same world 
as the as the Chinese worker doing 12-hour shifts or 16-hour shifts, cleaning the, the screens off the iPhone or getting up in the middle of the night and finishing a 10,000-order uh, uh, thing from Apple. And to see our lives as connected to those lives and having some sense of solidarity with them and then consuming with that in mind, that's very, very, very hard. And it's the one thing I discovered with the labor book is those, those connections aren't really well made, especially between people in, you know, advanced societies like the U.S., economically advanced societies like the U.S., where we have lots of people working in the industry, graphic artists, uh, students who are, you know, doing all of this stuff, and even here with our pod, we're disconnected from where all this stuff came from. And, you know, how do you link that up? So what's the appropriate response for conscious people listening to this program? Is it that we, you know, upgrade our computer, you know, replace your laptop less often? Is it on the level of individual behavior, consumer type choices? Or is there some more fundamental change that we need to push for? Well, it's always easy to put it on the shoulders of the consumer. And it's always easy to guilt the consumer and say, you know, keep your cell phone for longer or whatever. And it's a good practice, actually, to reuse or to figure out ways to extend the life of any devices. You know, when you were shopping around for a car, for example, I think I told you the most environmentally sound car that you, ha- that you can get is the one you already own. Because of the cost of making a new one, even though you buy a, you know, an advanced, technologically advanced, more ecologically sound device, it's still going to be better for the environment if you keep as long as you can these devices. So when you talked about the two refrigerators and, and the streaming, you're not talking also about refrigerators are built to last for 20 years now. Phones are built to last for two years or to be cycled out every two years because of built-in obsolescence. That has been a business strategy since the light bulb. From reading your work, it feels like the the quest for more, more, more on the individual level is really just a reflection of the underlying economic operating system's demand for growth. That, that you know, Marx showed us this, you know, back when, that if you have an economic rule set that requires the accumulation of capital in order to operate, that's how it functions, that's how it stays alive, then of course we're going to have to buy more and more stuff. Absolutely. We have to keep it in check, obviously, but there is pressure on us to accumulate because accumulation is a representation of wealth. Every commodity that's added to the list of all the good things that we have in this society is somehow represented as as true well-being and, and true wealth. And plenitude is every child should have a computer, not really. I mean, there are ways to, you know, cut it back and tone it down, but you see all this repeated over and over again. Buy or die, shop till you drop. These things are really underlying a lot of the ways people think in a consumer society, and these are the underlying values here. A, a culture of sustainability would ask different questions. Do you think we could even get there, though? Do you have hope that we can somehow turn that corner? Well, we go back to the question about what the consumer can do. That's, a, you know, you can train yourself to be better at this as an individual, but really it's the institutional um, purchasers of these goods, the ones who can really make a difference. And I, you know, include even Walmart in that. When, when Walmart has a sustainability list of products, everybody looks at that because they're a big buyer. And when Walmart decides, oh, people like organic yogurts and, and push off the shelf the more industrial versions of these yogurts and people buy it, Walmart changes the nature of the game. So it kind of builds in a scale to a more sustainable way of doing these kinds of consumption. But it's the institutional players like universities and governments, the big buyers of technology that could really put pressure on the industry to make a cleaner industry. The overall revolution that you're talking about is really a, a you know a long-term project. But we don't, don't start with the consumer so much, although it's really nice to have a kind of moral compass. But think about the politics around 
you know, these large purchases, the politics around when we talk about trade, international trade, and all the other things that, you know, the big, the big governments are talking about get involved at that level, too. And you've seen the governments in the Paris conference, the COP21, really there was a lot more realpolitik than there was in a address of the science and the, and the emergency needs we have in this ecological crisis. So you can't always trust the government, but you press, you, and you press, and you press. And every company that says they're going to do a supplier audit or a sustainability study makes themselves vulnerable to consumers who are interested to say, okay, all right, you know, News Corporation, you said you're going to do it since 2007. Step up. Let's see the results. Apple, you said you're going to do it since 2010. Let's see the results. So you can actually, you know, take them at their word and say, okay, we believe you. Now show us what you've done. Well, as soon as they say they're going to do it, they're vulnerable. So, you know, welcome that as well. So, I mean, you know, those of us on Team Human and elsewhere can fight the fight, take it to institutions and take it to government. But it still feels as though you know, we'll be on the record as having been on the good team <laughs> when the ship goes down. And the Martian anthropologists who research later will say, oh, there were some people here who objected to the way this species annihilated itself. Do you think we can get out of the mess? Do you think it's still possible? I mean, obviously, you wouldn't be teaching, you wouldn't be writing if you didn't hold out some hope that we can fix it. Yeah, we've talked about this before. You you start talking about this, within two weeks, the students face a total wall of despair. And then the real question is, what's the answer? And the answer is to organize, to become to become more activist in, in your attitudes towards these changes. You can do it on a small scale as a consumer to make these changes, but getting involved in some of the sustainability projects around the world and, you know, organizations like Good Electronics, based out of Amsterdam, doing great work raising awareness in the European Union about how these consumer goods are connected to workers in, in the factory zones in China and elsewhere, and, you know, how you can make a difference as a country, as a city, or uh, on a larger scale by insisting that there be local changes, regional changes, even national or even international changes. So get involved. But we're talking also about technologies which help us get this message out. So, you know, the idea of greening the media was let's get our stuff together because we're going to be using these technologies. You know, every Greenpeace organizer has a tablet in their hand. And the idea is when we're talking about greening the world, we have to be always greening the media at the same time because we're using these tools to help the effort. And, you know, we want to have sustainable goods, sustainable products, and we want to use them in, a, in an environmentally conscious way while we're making the world better. Well, thanks for helping us uh, not only see the hidden landscape of our uh, the impact of our technologies, but uh, teaching us a bit maybe how to listen to some of the uh, beings and uh, features of our reality that don't have a seat at the table just yet or don't have enough money to lobby with or <laughs> or, uh, or a means of hiring a lobbyist to argue on behalf of this species or those rocks. Or and, the workers. Or the workers. Or the workers, for that matter, who are, are good old-fashioned me- old members of Team Human. And thanks for what you do, you know, for trying to uh, awaken and enlighten uh, young people in particular to some of the errors of our ways, but in, in a fashion that empowers them to do something about it rather than just uh, run screaming, which is, uh, uh, t- you know, too often our response. Yeah. Well, I thank them and I thank the activists who've been working in this field for a long time. And, you know, talking to our students, you see there's a lot more hope. There's a lot more energy and there's a lot more interest in making those changes happen. But there's yet hope. Yeah, <laughs> there's hope. Well, thank you, Dr. 
Richard Maxwell, the author of Greening the Media and the new Rutledge Companion to uh, Labor and Media. We hope to have you back. And please, as you find other great members of Team Human, send them our way. Will do. Thanks for joining Team Human. We'll be back in the Basement Media Squad here at the Laboratory for Digital Humanism again next week with new strategies for human intervention in the machine. This show was produced and edited by Stephen Bartolomew. Today's show was made possible thanks in part to an underwriting donation provided by Zago, a strategic design studio committed to positive social change. Our friends at Zago also designed our logo and helped me with the visual design and website. Special thanks to Fugazi and Mike Watt for sharing the music you heard on the show. I'm Stephen Bartolomeu, and I'm on Team Human. And I'm Douglas Rushkoff. Come visit us at teamhuman.fm, where you'll find more information about our supporters and guests, the work they're doing, resources to get involved, and ways to find the others. Team Human, our last best hope for peace. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.